you so much for joining us this week at Zion City Church with teachings from Pastor Andrew Rael. We believe that God still speaks through His Word and His people. So right now, lean in and listen to the Holy Spirit. We hope that this message encourages you, inspires you, and brings you into a deeper love and worship of Jesus. Thanks for listening, and thanks for being a part of Zion City Church. As I mentioned previously, in this Advent series, we're going to be taking a look at three key ideas. Last week, we talked about joy. Uh, Today, we'll be talking about peace. And on Christmas Eve, we'll be talking about hope. Now, what comes to your mind when you think about the word peace? I know for parents of young kids, right, it's when all the kids go down at the end of the night, right? And the whole house is settled, and you just sit on the couch, You don't say anything. You don't do anything. Nothing's on. You're just there in the silence, right? And for for a parent, a young parent going through a season like that, that's peace. For some for others of you, it's when work is really stressful. There's a lot of things mounting up, a lot of things happening, especially as the end of the year starts to really kick up. And you, in your mind, go to that tropical beach, you know. You're just there at work and but you're there physically at work, but in your mind, you're somewhere in Hawaii where it's 75 degrees, the breeze is hitting you just right, you have the summer body you've always wanted, you're tanning, you're drinking something out of a coconut, and that right there is peace. For some of you, children of the 60s and 70s, peace for you looks like long hair, headbands, some body odor, right? Tie-dye and Woodstock, right? That was the embodiment of peace. Peace is something it feels like we are always chasing, but always eludes us. We never actually get to possess it. We never actually get to have. You see, we have moments in time, these pockets of peace, but somehow peace never seems to stick around. It seems that we are always missing peace. We are living in incredibly polarizing times, and the tide of our culture is that of division. Over the the last 12 months, the landscape of our culture has been shaped and framed by anxiety, stress, and if we're honest, at times, despair. And if we open our eyes and look all around us, what we all are longing for is this breath of fresh air of peace. Just for a moment, right? Just for a time, just peace. Just to breathe and blow through our world. And the world offers us a version of peace, but this version of peace is what I think of as a counterfeit peace. Let's talk about cultural peace. The peace that our culture offers us, its framework, its ideology around peace is this, the absence of problems, right? You see this on every commercial, on everything advertised, right? It's what gives you peace of mind is having this security system or, or these people are living peaceful because they're taking that medication with like a 45 minute really fasting at the end about all the sketchy side effects, right? These people are embodying what it looks like to be peace and their lives are just no problems, right? Everybody's always smiling and laughing like too much, like what would be unnormal for a normal around uh, a gathering, right? But they are embodying this idea of peace and it's this life without problems, this absence of problems. And what I hear a lot of followers of Jesus and even us just trying to be hopeful in some sense is that we're hoping that somehow 2021 is just going to be like the saving grace, like what we all needed. But here's the reality. 
everything we currently are taking and have in our hands now is going to follow us come January 1, right? Nothing mystical or magical is going to happen exactly at midnight. But even if it did, right, even if somehow midnight, January 1, 2021, everything was erased, everything was undone, right? We all got our wildest dream to come true. This year just went bye-bye, right? Guess what happens? We still don't live in a world without problems, right? We already had problems before this year. It wasn't as if all of us were living these perfect lives that nothing bad ever happened, and then 2020 happened, and now we have problems, right? It was, we already had problems. We already had stuff we were dealing with, and 2021 was all, you want some more? And just threw some more on top, right? So even if we got our wildest dream to come true, and everything from 2020 was undone, we'd still have problems, so this upcoming year or whatever is going to take place here in the future is not going to be a remedy for these problems that we have in our lives. And this cultural vision of life without problems is unrealistic, to say the least. We are already the most anxious people in human history. The stats are showing it's going through the roof. The generation that's coming up now is the most anxious generation ever before in all of human history. And we, even people who aren't in that generation who's coming up, are even more anxious than reported ever before. We are already addicted to smartphones and various forms of technology. We are already dealing with family and relationship issues. We are already missing peace. So when we talk about this idea, this vision of peace, it sounds um, naive and unhitched from reality. You know, it's like the Miss America person who like, if you could have one wish, what would it be? World peace. And everyone's like, yeah, good one, right? There, there seems to be a naivety around this idea of peace or that it's like just disconnected from reality. It's a pipe dream. It's like, as long as there's people, there'll never be peace. You know, kind of that cynical heart posture. But the biblical authors didn't feel this way. Jesus didn't feel this way. He felt for us as followers of Jesus, even here and now, despite what is going on, we could still have peace. But the biblical framework for peace is not the absence of problems. Because by those standards, Jesus then never had peace. Right? He had this, the, the religious leaders who were constantly looking for a way to murder him. That doesn't sound like an absence of problem. He had disciples who were constantly failing, messing up, doing the wrong things that he had to wrangle in. The fact that he had no financial stability, nowhere to lay his head, hated in the many towns that he went to. You could say that Jesus' life was summed up by a lot of problems, right? So by that world's metric of measuring peace, Jesus did not have any. But the biblical authors and Jesus create a whole new paradigm for peace. That peace is not a life without problems, but is a life made whole in the presence of God. That peace is not a life without the absence, or with the absence of problems, but a life made whole by the presence of God. Let's talk about this biblical idea of peace, which is, uh, the Hebrew word is shalom, right? The Greek word is erene, which means peace. All throughout the scriptures, we have this vision, this idea of peace. The idea of peace in the scriptures is, is not simply the absence of problems, but it's actually so much more. It has this idea of something being made whole. So I want you to envision in your mind a stone without any crack or blemish on it. It is a perfect stone. That stone would be in shalom, in 
peace. It's made whole, right? Um, specifically, this speaks to something that's very complex with lots of moving parts um, that is complete or whole. So I want you to think in your mind of shalom uh, for you jigsaw puzzle fans. I am not a fan, so if you're looking for Christmas gifts, definitely don't get that for me. But the jigsaw puzzle, right, you put all the pieces in place, and finally when you press that last piece in, that puzzle is in shalom, right? Wholeness, complete, nothing lacking. This is the biblical framework of peace, of shalom. And so the biblical authors use this word shalom to describe how the world and humans are meant to be. That humans and the world, human relationships and the world were meant for shalom. So for example, let's say you're Christmas shopping. And for those of our last minute shoppers, time is running out. This is your warning, right? But you're last minute shopping, you're rushing to the store, you swing into a spot, right? It was kind of tight, you shouldn't have done it anyways, but I'm running late. And then you're in a hurry, you're getting all your things, you know, you're trying to get all your things together, and you fling open the door, and poof, you hit another door. Moment of decision. Do I, and walk away, right? Or do I do the right thing and say, oh, I'll leave a card, or do whatever, right? Shalom would be making it right, and paying for that person's, the damage to that person's vehicle, right? Shalom is that relationship being whole. Imagine a married couple, you guys have been out doing stuff all day long, and both of you start to get hangry, Right? Like the way that your spouse is breathing is just getting under your skin for some reason. It's like you just need to eat, right? And so a little tiff breaks out, a little, a little spat, a little argument about something nonsensical like the temperature of the vehicle, you know? And so you have that little spat, and then later you swing in, you get a burger or something, and after all that's settled, you guys are, hey, I'm sorry, it was grumpy, my bad, you know? And the relationship is restored. That relationship is now in shalom, right? It has been made whole again. There was some tension, there was a disagreement, and now it is made whole. And so shalom is this idea of wholeness, completeness, all together, now, Advent is this moment in time where followers of Jesus pause from all this momentum at the end of the year. I don't know about you guys, but it's like the second Halloween happens, there's a time warp that just launches you to the rest of the year. And it seems like there's all this momentum building up at work and uh, in relationships and with things that you have to do. And it feels like your schedule gets busier and busier and busier and more full. And it's like this end sprint, right, at the very tail end of the year. And Advent serves as this moment to pause from that momentum and go into the end of the year and realign our hearts with who we are who we follow, and the story that we are living into. Advent is this moment where we pause from that momentum going into the end of the year and realign our hearts with who we are, who we follow, and the story that we live into. Advent is a moment where we position ourselves in the story of the scriptures and wait for the one who would usher in peace. And how now, here and now, we look forward to the day when full peace comes when Jesus returns and the wonder of his kingdom. Advent is a moment where we reflect on shalom. We reflect on peace. So I want us now to briefly immerse ourselves into the text here in Isaiah 9. Our teaching text says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, with specifically this verse, right, around this time, it gets thrown around. 
left and right. You might even have memorized it. You might know it. Your grandma might have it on a pillow somewhere. It might be on an ornament in your house somewhere, a little placard or something that you put up for Christmas. This verse is very popular, and it could often lose its power. It could often lose its wonder because it's become so familiar. So what I want for us this morning is to just really sit in this text and let it permeate down into our heart. Not just wonderful counselor and mighty God, everlasting, you know, but really let this sit down into what Isaiah is speaking to. And let's first speak to the context in which this is written to. So we know that Isaiah penned these words 700 years before Jesus. But the night that they were fulfilled was a, was a night of turmoil. We think of silent night, you know, the famous silent night, you know, and everything's just peaceful. And for some reason, Mary looks all like done up and Jesus is glowing, radiating. This was real world stuff. This was real life. Like she just gave birth. I'm pretty sure she's not all put together as you would think, right? And it was by no means a silent night. I mean, first of all, they're giving birth in a barn right? It's at least some noise there. And plus, they're in a city that is overwhelmed with people. Caesar Augustus is called for a census, and so anybody who has, had been born in Bethlehem, that's where their family's from, has migrated back into town, so much so that when Joseph and Mary pull in, right, there was no room for them at the inn, right? The whole place was overflowing with people, so they had to get this real niche Airbnb, right, living in a shed, basically, to be able to, uh, to give birth to Jesus on his arrival, and so it is a chaotic night, to say the least. But the time and moment that Jesus is born to was even a darker moment. The Jewish people had been overcome by Rome and its oppressors, right? And they're being persecuted, they're being oppressed, they're being put underneath the threat of Rome. Now, Rome, too, had a different vision of peace. It was that of the Pax Romana, meaning the peace of Rome. And the way that Rome would achieve world peace was through dominance, was through military power, and was through force. That was Rome's vision of peace. Rome's vision of peace was, you will comply or you will die. Just made that up, but that's pretty catchy. But, you know, it was, it was, it was through force and through strength. We're going to make you comply. We're going to overtake you, and if you don't like it, bye-bye, see you later. That was Rome's vision of peace. Imagine living underneath that threat, living underneath that rule. And all at the same time as well as the people were incredibly divided. You had some Jewish people who had become tax collectors, which means they got employed by the government of Rome to fraud their own people. As a tax collector, your job was to collect taxes for Rome, but you had free discretion to determine how much that was. So if there was a neighbor who had a really noisy dog, you could say, well, taxes tripled this year, right? And they had to pay it. There was no other, there was no way out of it. There was no arguing. There was no court dispute. It was, this is what you owe. You need to owe us. If you can't pay us, we take everything you, you, you have. We'll take your property. We'll take your land. Ultimately, you could go to prison. And so you have these people, these Jewish people, who were frauding their own people in allegiance to this new vision of Rome. Other people were these zealots. Now, these were community leaders who were leading a rebellion, right? They were often called Sicario because they would have a dagger within them. Sicario is a dagger that, has, that, that, is, that they would carry with them. And in the middle of the streets, they would go up, slice a Roman shoulder's neck, and just keep moving on, right? They're these kind of like underground guerrilla warfare types. And they were rallying together people to try and come and overthrow the Roman Empire. And so they, there's these competing visions of peace and how peace would be accomplished. But at the very least, everybody in this moment is divided, so you have this framework of peace that is counter to the, what the biblical authors have. And even amongst the people, the people are divided. 
Does this sound familiar to you? Like a current cultural moment that we are living in? That there is this different vision of what peace looks like propagated to us by the culture. And even amongst people who are supposed to be brothers and sisters, family, there is great division. It is into this moment a child is born. A son is given. Jesus comes down. After 400 years of silence from heaven, God in the flesh is born. In the middle of nowhere, to an incredibly poor family, the Messiah is born. And notice what it says about him. First it says, and the government will be upon his shoulders. Now when we think of this uh, idea, and the Jewish people thought of this idea, they thought that this meant Jesus was going to come in and run for office, you know? He was going to come in and he was going to rule. He was going to kick out Rome, take out Caesar, and establish his thing. And so when Jesus came proclaiming this good news, but was, 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 was teaching and instructing his disciples to love their enemies and to pray for those who persecute you, everyone's like, dude, what's the deal? You're supposed to come in, kick his butt, take over, and we're supposed to have a party. What's going on? You're the Messiah. Isn't the government supposed to be on your shoulders? Not understanding that what Isaiah is speaking to here is not Jesus overthrowing Rome, but that Jesus himself has all authority and power and rulership because of the, the, the authority that's been given to him. And he is a king, but his kingdom is not like the kingdoms of this world. Jesus even tells them, he says, if my kingdom were a kingdom of this world, my people would be equipped with warfare. He says, but it's not. His kingdom is a different kingdom entirely. And so when it says the government will be on his shoulders, it's this idea that Jesus will rule and reign as king. He will have authority, power, and responsibility, but it will not look like what you think it will look like. The next thing said of him is that he will be a wonderful counselor. This does not mean that Jesus was like a super good therapist, right? And a wonderful counselor. He could just help you navigate some of the emotional trauma you're working through. Although Jesus, I'm sure, is wonderful at that. But this idea of wonderful counselor, it's this idea of a strategic wise ruler. Somebody who's a counselor in this time and age would be somebody who would help a king, advise a king on how he's to manage his kingdom, how he's to deal with different problems and issues. And so not a therapist, but really a wise strategic ruler that he would be thoughtful, caring, considerate, consider all manners that are out there. And this is the kind of leader, the kind of king that would be, won't be born, would be one who is a, a wonderful counselor, that would be a marvel at him. And if you just read the Gospels, this is all over Jesus' life. So many times people are trying to pit Jesus in a corner or get him to say something that he shouldn't, and he just does this verbal judo that just like keeps everybody in wonder what, what he's doing and, and how, how intelligent that he is. Uh, this morning I was even reading in Mark 11, when they, the Pharisees come and ask Jesus, they say, by whose authority do you do this? And Jesus just asks them the question. He says, hey, was John's baptism from heaven or not? And they're like, because they know this. If they say it's not, all the people are going to rebel against them because they know John the Baptist was a good prophet. He was from God. And if they say he is, then John approved of Jesus and baptized him. And so Jesus gets them in a catch me too. You want to know what their clever answer was? We don't know. That's what they said. We don't know. And then Jesus says, then you have no authority to ask me on what authority I do these things. Boom. Verbal judo. You see what I'm saying there? Wonderful counselor. Strategic. Wise. And in the cultural moment that we are in right now, what we need is not more human secular wisdom 
of just better programs or more strategic. What we need is wisdom from above that just creates whole new paradigms about how we see the world and one another and how we're supposed to live this stuff out. What we don't need is more talking heads and political analysts and, and people forefronting this. What we need is wisdom from above, true wisdom that will lead us and guide us. It says of him that he is mighty God. This baby, born in a manger, mighty God. It's easy for us to just kind of assume, yes, it's the story of Jesus, yeah. But imagine if you were there in the room that night, and you've seen this baby, you've held this baby in your hand, and people are saying, this is God in the flesh. How differently would you feel? One, if I'm honest, it'd be hard to believe Looks like a baby to me, right? It would be, I mean, it's not like he was like glowing or radiating or was speaking as a child. I've come from above, right? He's just a child. But it says of him that he would be the Messiah, the promised one to come. But that the, the one who was born here would not only be, have the wisdom from heaven, but would have the power of God. That he would be mighty. That he would be able to do things otherwise unheard of that he would be god in the flesh but all powerful that when he spoke the raging sea calmed that when he spoke dead people raised to life that at his word all of creation bends to his will this one born in the manger would be mighty god the last one of the last things that's said about him is that he would be everlasting father this idea, this vision of provision and protection, that this one born in the manger would serve as a father in providing provision and protection for God's people. And the very last one is what? Prince of peace. Prince of shalom. That this one born in the manger would himself be our peace. Jesus knew this about himself. So much so in John 14, Jesus says this. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Now this word comes in the middle of a lot of stress. Jesus has just finished the last supper with his disciples and he's let them know very clearly he's about to die. And there's great fear overwhelming the disciples because like, dude, we followed you and now you're saying you're gonna die? Like, what are you talking about? Like, we just started this thing, we're just three years in, we gotta keep going, we gotta keep doing, we gotta get you to the throne. They had that same idea of what the Messiah would be as everybody else. And Jesus tells them they'll be crucified. He'll be crucified, he'll be killed. And fear and anxiety and stress overwhelm his disciples. And just before this, Jesus tells them that he's not going to leave them alone, but that he's going to send them a helper, one called the Holy Spirit, who will empower them, who will teach them all things, who will comfort them. Jesus says, though I am leaving, I am sending my spirit. My presence will be among you. And at the very tail end of that, he says this, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Jesus says, I'm not leaving you without anything. I'm giving you my peace. Peace that's not rooted in circumstance. 
Because in that moment, they're this rebellious club who is under the rule and reign of Rome and that, who's kind of put a big target on their back with religious leaders and political leaders. And so, you know, it's not a not stressful time, but he says, even in this, you will have peace. Even for all of the disciples, though martyrdom and persecution and all those things await for them, Jesus says, you will have my peace. How? How would they have peace? He's not there. Things are going awful because... What did Jesus just say before? He sent the helper, the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, our paradigm for peace is the presence of God. That no matter what we go through, we can have peace because we have him. We have God's spirit living inside of us. We can have peace because he's with us. No matter what's happening all around us, we can have peace because Jesus is here. This peace is not found in human systems. It's not found in perfect circumstances. Peace is being whole again in the presence of God and only he can do that. He, Jesus himself, is our peace. Notice what Paul tells the church in Ephesus. He says this in Ephesians 2. He says of Jesus, for he himself is our what? Peace. Who has made the two groups, speaking of Jews and Gentiles, one, having destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside his flesh, the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making what? Peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put death to their hostility, he came and preached what? Peace to you who are far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we have access to the Father by one spirit. The first thing I want to point out is this. Because of Jesus, we have peace with God. That there was hostility, as Paul says, in our relationship with God because of sin. Because we have chosen to rebel against our good creator. It created hostility between us and God. And Jesus coming down in the flesh is evidence of God's immense love for us. And that when Jesus came down, he made peace between us and God. A relationship that was broken and fractured is now made whole because of Jesus' death on the cross. It says to those who were near the Jewish people, to those who were far the Gentiles, no matter where they were, God has invited them in into this message, into this life of peace. No matter what you're going through here and now, you can have peace because peace has been made between you and God. Sometimes if we're honest, it's hard. Let's say we didn't live the best week possible just now. You know, let's say if there was a video camera in our car this last week, there'd be some things that came out of our mouths that we would not be thrilled about, right? Let's say the last season of your life, you were, you were hoping this, this pandemic and all that stuff would really make you strong spiritually, but you've just felt weak and beaten down. And what the enemy likes to do is he likes to take us when we're in our moments of weakness and he likes to heap on condemnation. He likes to say, yeah, dude, you are pretty bad, you know? You are in rough shape. Yeah, this week, I don't know if I'd call you a Christian, but, you know? And he heaps those things on you, and then we interpret that that's how God feels about us. Then it, we don't want to pray, because it feels like, 
why should I? He's seen the week that I've had. He's seen the things that I've done. He's seen the places that I've been. He's seen who I have become. But because what Jesus has done with you, your relationship with God is made whole. You have peace with God. That's what it says in Hebrews, that we can boldly come to the throne because of what he's done for us. So right now, if you felt any relational distance with God, it's not because God is pushing you away. It's because you've listened to the voice of the enemy and his, his words of condemnation. The word for you today is, you have peace with God. Now go be with him. Go talk to him. He wants to embrace you as a father and give you his peace. The next thing is that we have peace with others. How do we bring people together in such divided times? It feels impossible. Even in this room, if we just started lobbing out controversial topics, we'd see the room just divide, right? And all of us live in the same place, like go to the same church. There would be division here if we just started lobbing out on this side if you think this, on this side if you do that. We're not going to do that, right? But there would, there would, be, it would be this felt division. If all of us wanted to, let's say, go and get a bite to eat, Getting a consensus on what we all wanted would be very challenging, especially if all of us decided to be outspoken and dig our heels in. You know, we'd have pizza over there, tamales in the back, you know, Mexican food over here, whatever, right? A kale salad somewhere in the midst, you know what I mean? And we would all be this conversation and this arguing about where we would do, where we would go. We would never come to an agreement. And so this is like a microcosm of the whole world. How are we supposed to get everybody to agree on anything at any given time, you know? It seems insurmountable. It seems unconquerable. But this is the glory of the gospel of peace. That this message of Jesus unifies everybody from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Because we don't submit to our own ideas, our own visions, our own. We submit to the lordship of Jesus. It is to him that we obey. It is to him that we heed to. It is to his spirit that we listen to. I want you to think about how radical it was uh, Jesus' crew. In Jesus' crew, he had zealots and he had tax collectors. Those two frameworks we talked about before, they were in the same family. They stayed at the same hotels. They ate together with Jesus. Do you not think that there was heated debate? Do you not think there was the little passive-aggressive dig must be nice to be a traitor, you know, whatever it was, right? There was this tension there. Jesus had people who followed him who were incredibly wealthy, right? Who money wasn't an issue for them. And he had people to, that, who he followed that didn't have a dime to their name. You think there wasn't tension there? As they're all walking around, oh, my feet hurt as they're in their Gucci slides or something, you know? And this person's been in the same sandals for 10 and a half years, like, bro, your feet hurt, my feet hurt, you know? The tension there. Different socioeconomics, different places, born from different places, different rivalries, all that kind of stuff. It's even said of Jesus, um, uh, Nathaniel says this of Jesus when he hears about him, he, go, he comes and hears the message that Jesus is the Messiah and that he's from Nazareth, and he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? You know, that's already his disposition towards the dude he's following. He's a Nazarene, you know, I don't know, guy, you know. But, but this was the tension, this was the division, this was the hostility, and Jesus' followers still rallied together. And that's a microcosm of the church. A lot of what the, 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 the scripture authors are writing to in the New Testament, those letters, are trying to heal division that's taking place. 
Even in Corinth, you have this example of the, the wealthy people were able to get to the service before everybody else because they didn't have to stay working late. And so they'd all come partake of communion together, so much so that some of them were getting drunk. And some of them were eating all the food. So when all these people, these blue-collar workers who barely got off their shift, tired, beaten, worn out for the day, would come into the church service, they're already drunk and they ate all the food. That's the division that's happening. You think you're so or whatever, right? It was already brewing. And so Paul writes to them, this has to stop. But, but that's the New Testament writings is to bring peace in those places. And there's all this instruction in the scriptures for us to be people who embody peace. But what brings us all together, what brings peace between each other is this message of Jesus. That we have been forgiven so greatly, so we forgive. That we have been invited into a family that we had no business being a part of because of his love. And so anybody is welcome in this place. Who could bring these people together? Only Jesus Jesus can bring healing and wholeness to our relationships with others. The last thing I want to point out is this, peace within ourselves. You might be feeling an angst even within yourself about something you've done, about where you've been, about who you have become. God in his great love can bring you peace to that situation. He can bring healing and wholeness to even how you feel about yourself with him. I know there are those here in this room now who your biggest critic is not the people at work, it's not, you know, uh, friends and family, it's you. Day after day, moment after moment, you are picking yourself apart in your mind. You struggle to come to church, you struggle to want to serve, you struggle to want to do things like that because you feel unworthy. If you only knew me, if you only got to be around me, relationships are hard for you because you feel that if anyone gets close enough to me, they'll see how much of a, a screw-up I am and how I'll wreck this relationship. You are, are, are toxic to your own person. The message of the gospel is that you could have even peace within because God looks at you and he says, you're worthy of my love. You're worthy of my sacrifice and you belong here with me. I see you and all your faults and all your failures and I say, you are worthy of my love. And the peace that God could give you is the peace of being whole even within yourself, even with your own shadow side, even with your own cracks and failings. So the call for us biblically as we carry this message of peace is to become people of peace. So first, our call as followers of Jesus is to be peacemakers. Notice it's not peacekeepers. We're not, you stop that, and you stop talking. We're going to all be, you know, everyone's going to do the same thing at the same time. We're not peacekeepers. We're peacemakers. And if our idea of peace is not the absence of conflict, but again, restoring things to wholeness, then what we do is we continue the ministry of Jesus here and now. So what do we do with this message of wholeness, of peace, it is our call to be peacemakers. We bring healing and wholeness wherever we possibly can. Now let's get real. The church stinks at this right now. And that's a kind way to put that. The church is incredibly divided. The, the, the church with the large C is the most, has the most vitriol, most hate for people within its own family. Don't believe me? Just go to YouTube and see 
critiques of pastors and there's YouTube videos hours long of people saying, this guy's a false prophet because he wears skinny jeans and like all this other crazy stuff, right? It's all over the place. Hate and vitriol and lauding these things back within the family of Christ, within the body of believers. People will take the position of the pulpit and they'll speak ill of other pastors in their own city so that more people could come to their church. That is not the heart of Jesus. We are called to be peacemakers. Division breaks the heart of God, especially within his own family. And the church is the worst at this. And brothers and sisters, we must grow in this area to be peacemakers. What really breaks my heart is when things happen in the world, in the global landscape, and Christians show up on the scene, people aren't excited. They're not like, oh, they're like, here come the Christians, ready to ruin everything, you know? It's already this downfall. It's this thing because, it, and that's on us because how we've modeled this. When something goes wrong, the first place people should call is the church. The first people they should look to are Christians because we are people who make peace. We bring things to wholeness again. We restore that which has been broken. We love those who are hurting. We are generous to those who are in need. We respond with kindness and grace because of the kindness and grace that we have received. We embody this message of peace by being people who make peace. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers. Let this be who we are. We can't come around Christmas time and sing about peace and joy and the king is here and go and hate our neighbor. We can't sing about joy and peace. Jesus is born. What are you doing for Christmas to your coworkers when you've been screaming at them all week, when you've been slandering them behind their back, when you've been causing division, hostility, pain in their lives? As followers of Jesus, we must embody the message of peace, bringing healing and wholeness wherever we can. The next key idea I had was this, that as followers of Jesus, we should live, leave footprints of peace wherever we go. That wherever we've been, there's the footprints of the peace that we left when we left the room. Whether it's at the grocery store with a quick conversation with the person checking you out, whether it's at your workplace, whether it's with your friends, whether it's this Christmas meeting with your family, that whenever you leave the gathering, there are footprints of peace leaving with you, you know, because you've brought peace into that place. Paul says in Ephesians 6 that our feet are to be fit with the readiness of the gospel of peace. He says, lace your shoes up tight because they are carrying this message of peace. Peace with God, peace with others, and peace even within ourselves. And the last thing is this, we must strive for peace. The scriptures are clear, fight for peace. Come together, keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Bringing things to wholeness and keeping things from fragmenting is incredibly hard. Look at your own family, look at your own friends group, right? Keeping the, keeping the uh, making peace in places, bringing things to healing, it's hard, it takes work, but it takes intentionality on our parts. Peace isn't going to happen in our church by accident. We're not going to all show up and be like, wow, this place is incredibly peaceful. It's because people are committed to making peace here bringing healing and wholeness to the places where they are. And if we want our community to be a place of peace, we must strive for peace. And ask them, I'm going to ask the worship team to come up as I close here. And I want to close on this idea of perfect peace. 
Isaiah says this in Isaiah 26, 3. The verse will be on the screens. He says this. You, being God, will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. He will keep in perfect peace. In the Hebrew, it says, you will keep in shalom, shalom. Perfect wholeness, perfect wholeness. This idea of perfect peace, lacking nothing. Advent is this season to turn your mind towards Jesus, to trust him, and to let him keep you in his shalom, shalom, his perfect peace. You have brought in with you this morning brokenness, stuff that weighs your soul down, whether it's between you and God, whether it's between you and someone you care about, or whether it's even between you and yourself. Broken, fragmented, longing for wholeness. And you spend your life looking for peace. Maybe it's financial security. Maybe if I to just get to this place where I make this much money, then maybe then I can finally breathe. Maybe it's if I just find the perfect husband or the perfect wife, right? The season of singleness has been hard, you know? If I just find him, he comes in my world, I'll just finally have peace. Maybe it's politics. Maybe if this election gets overturned or if this election, then I'll finally have peace. But those are all counterfeit peace. What you're looking for is him. What you're longing for is not found in the wisdom of men or in the circumstances of your story, but in the presence of God himself. And here's the good news. He's here. By God's Holy Spirit, he's here in the room, here and now, and he's moving. And he's speaking. God might be speaking to you right now, and you're wondering, is this God speaking? And God is speaking to you right now because that's what he does. And he's offering his hand and saying, come and have my peace. Not as the world gives peace do I give to you, but my peace. Perfect peace. And if you're longing for that this morning, as we sing, I want you to ask God to give you his peace. But it's going to require some surrender. Saying, God, I don't know everything. I don't know all the things that will bring my heart peace. God, I don't want to keep trusting in things that, that never satisfy. I want to trust in you. So I turn from those things. I turn from trusting in political parties. I turn, from, I turn from trusting in financial stability. I turn in trusting into these lies of comparison. I turn from trusting in these things that will never give me peace. And I look to you and I trust in you. Because Isaiah says here, he keeps those a perfect peace whose minds are steadfast. They're not moving. They're not shaking. They're not going anywhere else because they trust in him. So church, let's stand. Let's proclaim this Advent news that we have peace because Jesus is here and His Spirit is moving and His Spirit is speaking. Lord, we come before you. Thank you for your peace. Lord, let your peace wash over us. To see all the new content coming from Zion City, follow us on Instagram or like us on Facebook. 
And to partner with us financially, visit our website at zioncitychurch.net.